Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. The clock is ticking towards an HSR strike in Hamilton. We also discuss hockey neck guards, a new hockey league, the Ticats are toast, our IEC series begins, and how automakers love government subsidies. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Now it's not a done deal, but 94% of members with the HSR rejected the city's final contract offer yesterday, and the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107 has set a strike date as of Thursday, 12.01 a.m. Thursday. Transit drivers, mechanics, and other transit workers could be on strike. Meantime, the city is advising you, if you do rely on the HSR, to make alternative arrangements beginning on Thursday. The individuals who rely on transit service to get to where they're going, to get to work, to get to you know families' homes, to get to school, uh, they'll be impacted um, because their, their daily commutes, um, as they're used to it, uh, will have to necessarily change. That is city spokesperson Matthew Grant a couple of weeks ago here on GMH discussing the impact of a potential HSR strike. That potential could be realized, as I said, this coming Thursday. Eric Tuck is the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107, which represents HSR drivers, mechanics, and other transit workers, and joins us on GMH. Eric, good morning. Good morning, Rick. How are you this morning? I'm good. 94%. That sounds like members did not like the city's final contract offer. No, they definitely didn't, and uh, they showed up in record numbers to cast their ballot to let the city know that that's not an offer that they're willing to accept. Given the impact of a strike, a strike notice has now been uh, handed to the city. 12.01 a.m. Thursday would be the date. I'm sure that decision was not made lightly. It's it's never made lightly. You know, as the uh, working class, you, the last thing you want to do is withdraw your services. We know how dependent Hamiltonians are on uh, on our transit system, and we value them. And, uh, you know, we, we, we spend day in and day out servicing uh, their needs as far as their transportation needs and uh, definitely to withdraw our services is not something we ever take lightly and in fact we haven't done it in the last 25 years uh, but there are times when uh, you know uh, given the economic times we're in the market that we're living in where you have to demand uh, wages that keep pace with inflation and are reflective of that market and uh, unfortunately more and more of our members are getting priced out of the market they, at the very market that they're serving I do want to make mention that dark Darts is not affected by this, so if you're listening right now and rely on darts, this does not include darts. Let's talk about negotiations. We know that the city presented a final offer that obviously the membership did not appreciate. Where do we go from here? Are any other talks scheduled? So we have no other talks scheduled at this time. Uh, our bargaining team remain ready uh, to, to return to that table at any time that the city uh, wants to improve their offer. The, the current offer, as I said, the, there has to be an opportunity to actually bargain. Uh, we haven't seen that to date. Basically, the uh, the employer dropped the offer on the table, the same offer that they gave uh, uh, the other unionized bargaining staff. And we've said, no, wait a minute, you know, uh, you gave a 4% raise to the non-union staff. You also gave them a market adjustment of up to 11%. We're not prepared to to uh, accept less than a market adjustment at 4%, and that's what we're looking for. Uh, that's reflective of the market we're living in. 
Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Eric Tuck, president of the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107, uh, representing HSR bus drivers, mechanics, other transit workers, as the strike deadline is now 12.01 a.m. on Thursday. If a deal is not reached at that time, uh, the HSR will be idled. Uh, Let's talk about the contract offer itself. The city sent out a news release saying that in the final year of this agreement, 2026, given the offer that they're presenting, um, HSR workers will earn a salary of more than $79,000 in the final year of the deal in 2026. And some people might look at that number and think, wow, that's a pretty good salary. Why does that not work for the HSR? Yeah, Rick, so listen, 79000 does sound like a, a reasonable salary, and it it, it, it is. But it, when you consider the, what the, has happened in our, our market over the last five years. Housing prices have basically doubled here in the city of Hamilton. Fuel costs have gone up by about 30%. Uh, the food costs have gone up 30%. The reality is that 79000 isn't what it used to be. Uh, I know there's lots of people making less than 79000 uh, but there's also a lot of people making more, and that's that's the inequity we're you know we're focusing on. Uh, we've got non-union salary people who are making 120 to 160 thousand dollars who just got raises. Uh, I know someone 130 thousand just got a 10 percent raise, uh, and a lot of those individuals are actually working from home, so it's a much greater benefit than just the uh, just the 10 percent increase they got. Uh, so we're looking for some equity on that front so that uh, we can actually afford to live in the market today. Part of this, too, and you've made mention of this, is that other transit systems in other communities pay their employees better, and uh, you're you're losing some people to those cities. Yes, uh, you know, Brampton, Mississauga, Toronto, TTC, Go, uh, My Way. Uh, are all paying three to five dollars an hour more. The reality is, and that's not to even talk about the skilled trades. I'll tell you now, uh, we're we're probably down two or three skilled trades today, and we're trying to gear up for uh, another garage down in the lower city. There's no way we're going to be able to uh, fulfill the the needs of that garage uh, with our skilled trades if we cannot improve the uh, the wages of our skilled trades. Uh, people. Well, I think we're all, especially those who rely on the HSR, are hoping that uh, the two sides will come to the table with an agreement that is a win-win for both. Eric, best of luck in doing that. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate the time. Eric Tuck is the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107. That union represents HSR bus drivers as well as mechanics and other transit workers. Uh, We'll keep you up to date here on GMH. Did you get a a statement from Acting City Manager Carlisle Kahn? We said, quote, we know how important transit is to the residents and businesses of Hamilton and the city believes the best outcome is a mutually agreed upon resolution with ATU Local 107 that helps avoid service disruption. With a strike date announced, the city will begin to implement its contingency plans and we are advising all transit customers to do the same as all regular Hamilton transit service will cease on November the 9th at 12.01 a.m. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Many people in the hockey world are still coming to grips with the tragic accidents that killed former NHL player Adam Johnson. He was playing for the Nottingham Panthers in the English League back on October 30th when he was slashed in the neck by the skate of another player. And the 29-year-old was taken to hospital where he died. Now, following his death, there has been a a very loud conversation about neck guards in the National Hockey League and in other hockey leagues, whether it's a, a, a beer league or whatever the case is. There's also been an increase in orders 
for neck guards. Joe Camillo is the owner of Nico Apparel Systems and Aegis Impact Protection and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Joe, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm well. Yourself? I'm okay. It um, It's sobering to think, though, that a tragedy like this uh, creates an attitude change. It is. I, I, I want to tell you that uh, coming back from a Hamilton guy, of course, when I, uh, I come from a, the apparel background and uh, when my kids all started to play hockey, I never played as a kid. I looked at the neck guard years and years ago and I thought, this is, this is just not right. And I can tell you that uh, I just felt that the, that the material that runs around your neck, that moved around, you could just sort of move it around with your finger. It, it wasn't locked in. It didn't have 360 coverage. I thought well before this unfortunate incident happened that it, need to be, it needs to be changed. Well, and, and you have done a phenomenal job in changing that. Tell us about your product and how it is much safer for the player. Well, it was way back, again, in, in, uh, in the 2000s when my kids started playing. I, I noticed, again, about the coverage. So I started to work on it before seeing a show featuring this company called D3O that makes this material that hardens on impact. So I thought I would, I would try to reach out to them, which took me four years until the death of Kyle Fundidas, who was a, a player in Alberta who died in 2012 with a strike to the throat, hmm. that they allowed me to work with them. So from 2012 to 2016, I worked on making a neck guard that had the, the circumference, the, the 360 cut protection, in addition to impact. So I, I got a patent on it, and we launched it in 2016. And it is, it's because of our apparel, it's soft, it's comfortable, it's washable. Uh, the impact piece is removed. It can be used over and over again. Uh, we have Kevlar inside, and we sell it all over the world. And I understand following Adam Johnson's death that your phone has been ringing off the hook. We've sold out. Like, basically, what happened, it was, it was a Sunday morning. I went into work, and, and you know, we're, we're on various platforms. Uh, and one of my contacts said, listen, Joe, you're, you're blowing up on Amazon. And we sell on Amazon. Hmm. And I didn't understand. And then, of course, I saw the story about the unfortunate, the, the terrible incident with Adam Johnson. And it's not the first time we've heard it. Uh, it was a couple of years ago. There was a young player out of Connecticut that also died on the ice as well. And it was tragic. And it just, I think this people just, it, it was just so, it had such an impact that people just recognized. It's just things, something needed to be done. Because if you look at hockey, you have padded shin guards, chest guards, elbow pads, helmet. But then you have this little piece of fabric or nothing to protect, which is one of the most vulnerable areas of your body, which is the neck. Uh, how many different kind of neck guards do you have? I have uh, well, I have two goalie. I have a goalie specific, two of them, and I have two player. And so one is bib, one is bibless. Uh, the bib seems to be the preference. We sell a lot to the younger players as well. And then I'm launching in the spring, I'm going to be launching a shirt, an integrated shirt as well. So I have two uh, Four specific products, but two two for the player. Well, Joe Camillo is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Joe owns Nico Apparel Systems, Aegis Impact Protection, the maker of neck guards. And as you heard, sold out. Given that fact, uh, is production being ramped up? How are you addressing the need? Well, I mean, no one predicted it. Uh, we were lucky. We, we had we had ordered a lot even before because it's been part of our business. I, I do a lot of different things. We do a lot of team apparel. We ship all over the world. We've been so proud to, to work. I, I outfit the Olympic rowing team for rowing. That's my background. I rode at Leander Boat Club. We're ordering more. And, and this product is so specific. We deal with companies overseas 
that have been with us for almost eight years. And we work with uh, testing standards called B&Q. You notice on a net guard, you'll see that anvil. There's an anvil on the side. That means it's been tested every year. That company, that factory has been tested for cup protection. So there is a process. So right now we're, we're, we're going through, we're digging out whatever uh, pieces we have. We're shipping to the States. We're shipping overseas. Hmm. We got an order, believe it or not, we got an, a significant order from China. The Chinese also, we have contacts there. And they're concerned about safety. So it's funny, you know, where you think you're importing from China, the Chinese are buying from us. So um, it's in uh, it's Source for Sports. It's in Hockey Life. It's in Sport Check. Um, and you can buy it online on AegisImpact.com uh, or on Amazon. But uh, we're, you know what? It's just sad that it had to take this incident to happen. Absolutely. And it's uh, great to hear that a company right here in Hamilton is making a world of a difference for more and more hockey players out there. Joe, appreciate the time. Best of luck with this going forward. All right. Thanks for your time, Rick. Joe Camillo, the owner of Aegis Impact Protection, Nico Apparel Systems, uh, doing some great stuff in this community and keeping hockey players safe. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a new hockey league in town. We've had... Well, we've had the OHL, we've had the AHL, we've had various other hockey leagues come and and do some amazing things. And now there's a new one. It's an LGBTQ hockey league that has started in Hamilton. It's called Queer Hockey Hamilton. And joining us now are co-founders Alex Kalbach and Katie Campanella. Alex, Katie, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Good morning, great. How are you? I'm fantastic. Uh, Katie, we'll start with you. Why start Queer Hockey Hamilton? Um, I think it's just a really, really safe space. What happened was Janelle, our other co-founder, she posted in an LGBT Facebook group just looking for some players to join and go to a public shitty. I think our first shitty was maybe four players. And then we figured, well, if we can get enough interest, why don't we just get our own ice and go from there? And our first shinny last month, we brought out about maybe 25 players. So now our next shinny is slotted for November 18th, and it's full with a wait list. Wow. So it's just grown wildly since then alex your thought on the response that you've seen i absolutely love the response and i'm kind of overwhelmed with the amount of response we got so quickly um and just kind of following suit from other major cities who have queer leagues available uh and like katie said just to provide a safe space for lgbt players and without restricting the gender binary and, and uh, Alex, we'll stay with you. In terms of that inclusivity, we've seen the hockey world take some steps. Some would say they're, they're still baby steps at this point. But talk about the inclusivity of this league. Yeah, so we are d- not dividing by gender at all, all skill levels. We have our, our change rooms uh, completely gender neutral. So there's a lot of players who maybe they don't identify with their assigned gender at birth. Uh, and maybe they don't have somewhere to actually play because when you go play adult hockey or even kids hockey, it's either male or female. Um, and then some players can actually get uncomfortable by the fact that somebody could be gay. Uh, maybe they don't want to get dressed with them. So we just kind of bring all these players together. Um, and so far it's going really well. And I've played in queer leagues myself and it was just a completely different like experience than I ever experienced before. So I wanted to kind of replicate that back home. What's that feeling like? It's actually like you feel like you're a part of the team and people actually understand who you are. Um, they have the exact same feelings you have. They've maybe been through same the same experiences as as you. And at the end of the day, we're just we're just there to play hockey. 
Yeah, and it's the sport that we all love, no matter what your background is and, and, and whatnot. Katie, talk about, you know, that, that first shinny game. There was four players. Now you're getting, you know, a, a couple of dozen at least. Where are these players coming from? Um, we actually have players mostly from Hamilton. We have a few from Brantford. We had one that I think Alex came all the way from Peterborough just for the game. Wow. That's yeah, a, that's a bit of a pretty, trek. Yeah. From the very like from the very beginning when people started coming to the change rooms, the vibe was just like super happy, super excited. We talked to a couple of people who hadn't played in almost a decade because it, they were transgender, so they felt that they no longer had a place in hockey. So now that we've created that for them, I think it creates a sense of belonging for everyone. And I think belonging to a team is important for everyone to have in their life. And even people who grew up playing hockey, like myself as a queer woman, I, I felt like I belonged. But there's that time when, you, when you're 13, 14, and you start, the girls in the change room start to talk about boyfriends and this and that. And then I just kind of felt a divide there. Hmm. So I think this is a place where I finally feel like I fully belong and a lot of our other players do as well. Katie, we'll stay with you. Where do you play? When do you play? How often do you play? Um, Right now it's monthly. We play at the Quad, the Mohawk Sports Park. Um, We're definitely going to try and bump that up maybe to bi-monthly. But our next event is November 18th. And we have a skills skills and drills um, session coming up in December as well. So definitely right now we're monthly, but we will be looking looking forward into the future into doing maybe bi-monthly. We're talking about a new LGBTQ hockey league that has started up in Hamilton. It's called Queer Hockey Hamilton. And joining us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Alex Callback and Katie Campanella, co-founders of this hockey league. Alex, what's the competition like? Uh, we, what do you mean by competition? In terms of competition level, like, do we see some pretty good hockey players Oh, out there? sorry. Um, so we have all skill levels. So I guess that kind of falls into our inclusive inclusivity as well because... Maybe sometimes people don't feel comfortable like starting up a new sport as a queer person and not having any skill. Um, so we saw like, you know, we invited people from all all skill levels and we kind of asked everybody if they'd be interested in maybe learning more skills in a safe, safe space. Um, and there is a lot of interest for that as well. So we have players who have maybe had their first time on the ice since 10 years, hmm. first time on the ice maybe ever. Um, and also players that have played at national levels. So it's really all over, but the sportsmanship is really there on the ice. Wow, that's awesome. Katie, where can people sign up? Um, right now, we're just on our Instagram, which is Queer Hockey Hamilton. Uh, we're looking into building a website, but right now we have a link tree in our bio. So all of our information is found there. Nice. I'll, I'll get both your thoughts on, because uh, this was a big news story in the NHL, the Pride Tape making a comeback after it was initially banned by the league. Katie, we'll start with you, and then Alex, maybe your your thoughts on Pride Tape coming back. Yeah, I mean, it should be a really a no-brainer that the players are allowed to wear what they want. Um, the Pride Tape initiative actually got us in contact on social media with um, queer leagues such as ours like across the world, which has really just propelled our, our movement and our initiative. So I think um, the banning of Pride Tape actually did some good for our community in that it was creating a conversation. And the reinstating of the Pride Tape is even better because I think a big part of queer sports and uh, queer communities at all is allyship. And that's just kind of been the missing piece. So hopefully with the reinstating of the Pride Tape, that allyship piece just continues to grow stronger and stronger. Nice. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely second everything Katie had said. I think it's just like a small little really good gesture that players can do as we've seen some of the NHL players like continue to use it throughout the band. And it's just like it's not just for the players and the spectators now. It's just paving the way for future LGBT players 
like as people are becoming more comfortable and coming out earlier in life, like they don't want to miss their chance at playing hockey because they can't belong. It's a cool idea. I wish you guys uh, nothing but the best of luck going forward. Thanks for the time today. Thank you so much. Thanks again. Katie Campanella and Alex Callback, co-founders of Queer Hockey Hamilton. Check them out online. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Seven minutes to go in the game. Montreal up by five. Pressure coming. It's checked down. Jake Hardy almost fumbled it. And he hangs on. He bobbled it on his way to the end zone, and he gets a touchdown. That is R.J. Broadhead on the Ticats Audio Network in 900 CHML as the Tiger Cats season... Well, it ended with a whimper on Saturday as Hamilton lost 27-12 against Montreal in the CFL's East Division semifinal. The dream of Hamilton hoisting the Grey Cup on home turf in a couple of weeks' time ended with a thud over the weekend. John Salavanis is an analyst with the Ticats Audio Network and joins us on GMH. John, good morning. How are you? Hey, Rick. I'm doing fine. You know, at the end of the day, this Hamilton team, for whatever reason, just could not score touchdowns on Saturday or against Montreal, period, this season. It was a tough go. Oh, you're absolutely right. You know, and Rick, you go back to the very beginning, you know, from training camp to the final game. Uh, this offense uh, for Hamilton was not built for an elite CFL offense. And, and I say that with this in mind, that that uh, a solid offense has to have a good offensive line, and that offensive line was in flux uh, throughout the season uh, with numerous changes and numerous different people trying to play in it. So uh, it was not surprising that they couldn't hold up uh, against Montreal and Toronto. You told me years ago that a team's offense is only as good as its offensive line, and that is exactly the case here in Hamilton. Certainly some improvements will need to be made in the offseason going into 2024. I do want to ask you about the quarterback situation and the decision to start Matt Schiltz ahead of Bo Levi Mitchell and play Schiltz for the overwhelming majority of the game. It was surprising to me. Was that surprising to you? Not as much uh, of a surprise, uh, you know, because Matt had been coming into the ball games uh, earlier uh, and, and putting a spark into that offense. So, you know, to me, uh, you know, the call to go to him maybe was um, more of a uh, decision that we don't want to get behind early. And with Schultz's ability to run, uh, maybe we'll uh, escape some of that pressure that. Uh, Noel Thorpe, the off defensive coordinator for Montreal, likes to employ. After the game, uh, Ticats quarterback Bo Levi Mitchell said, quote, he doesn't foresee him being here in 2024. Do you think that's just the emotion of the game? That, that very well could be, but I, I do think uh, that decision has to be made. In fact, everything has to come under review, uh, starting with uh, the personnel department and the head coach and then the assistant coaches and then the players. So, uh, it won't be long before we learn, uh, you know, whether or not uh, Bo will be returning. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Coach Sal, John Salavanis, analyst with the Ticats Audio Network, longtime offensive line coach with the team, and uh, reflecting on Saturday's loss in Montreal. One of the big stats that really, I think, hits a lot of Ticats fans right between the eyes is going 0-8 against Toronto and Montreal. That just can't happen. No, and, and you know, Rick, in those eight games, uh, there were only five TDs passing by Hamilton uh, against 15 intercepts. Now, uh, in 32 quarters of football, 
you can only score five TDs passing the ball in, in the passing league. And then they were sacked 17 times in those eight games. So that goes back to the idea they were not built uh, to be uh, an elite team, uh, especially in this division. There's With any offseason, there's going to be changes. Do you expect any major changes to be made? There's always going to be change. You and I both know that uh, from the time we've spent uh, together calling games. There never will be the same team coming back uh, in the following year. Uh, some of the major changes uh, will deal with free agency. Some uh, players will come, some players will go. Last year, Hamilton brought in 10 outside free agents. So, you know, it's inevitable that there will be changes. What do you think is the biggest need on this team going into 2024? Well, they've got to go in. If they're going to play an American tackle uh, on both sides, you know, off uh, of the offense, they have got to go get people who can stay on the field. We had at one time four offensive tackles on the six-game injured list, and, and that just can't be. You can't tell me that you can't go to the United States and find two good offensive tackles that, that could play this game up here in Canada. I think you're 100% right. Coach Sal, appreciate the time as always. Thanks for waking up with us, and uh, we'll catch up with you soon. Yeah, and don't forget, folks, come out uh, and, uh, and support the Grey Cup game no matter who's in it. Show the country that Hamilton can put on a great festival. Absolutely. It's going to be a fantastic showing. The game, the festival, a whole lot of fun. Hope to see you there. Thank you, Rick. Talk to you again. You got it. Coach Sal, John Salavanis, longtime analyst with the Ticats Audio Network, even longer as an offensive line coach with this team and knows a thing or two about you know pushing those big bodies around in the trenches and getting victories and Grey Cup wins and all that excitement that this team has provided to the fan base for years. Uh, this season, though, cut a little shorter than many had hoped as this team bows out in the Eastern semifinal. And the Grey Cup will feature, well, either Toronto, Montreal, Winnipeg, or BC. Two of those teams will meet on November 19th here in Hamilton. It would have been even a more exceptional party with, obviously, the hometown team in the game, but just not meant to be this year. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We are launching the IEC series this week. This week we're profiling the Industry Education Council of Hamilton and the work that they do in the community in bridging the gap between education and employment, connecting students to jobs. And uh, today we're focusing on elementary and, and secondary education and experiential learning. Reese Morgan is the executive director of the IEC, and Cheryl Robinson-Petrozzini is the director of education with Hamilton's Public School Board. Reese, Cheryl, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Good to be back. Good morning, Rick. Great to be here. Hey, Doing Cheryl. very well. Yeah, uh, thanks for joining us today. Let's start with you, Cheryl. Connecting education and employment. What's being done at the public board to fill that bucket? Uh, thank you for asking that, Rick. So much is being done. Uh, we really have a focus on experiential learning because we know that this really helps uh, students develop a deeper understanding of their learning and connections to the real world. It helps them engage in education and career life planning through uh, exposure to a variety of careers and pathways. And they develop modern learning skills and get to participate, fully participate, uh, be active and engaged in their learning. 
And this is very much uh, aligned, Rick, with our new multi-year strategic plan uh, that the Board of Trustees just approved on October the 2nd. And in that plan, our mission is that every student experiences a sense of belonging and engages in dynamic learning to reach their potential and build their own future. So you can see how a focus on experiential learning uh, aligns perfectly with that. Yeah, that's exciting. Reese. how closely does the IEC work with uh, entities like the local public board to make sure that those those gaps are being filled and that students are getting uh, wh- what they're hoping to get out of this? Well, Rick, I mean, about 40 years ago when the IEC started, it was the founding fathers uh, uh, and founding members of both boards. In fact, all three boards at that time, the Hamilton-Wentworth Public and Catholic and uh, the, the Wentworth Board um, that came together really to say that we need to sort of look at, uh, you know, what experiential learning, how can we work together closely with industry, uh, uh, community and business to, to sort of help develop students, not only um, what are they're looking at in the school, but what goes beyond uh, working closely. So we act as that catalyst between the education, the industry and the broader community. We work together with programs uh, to, to develop those ones uh, from K to 12 and look beyond to sort of see where they're going and how we can help develop workforce. Uh, Our relationship is very strong with both boards. Uh, uh, I'm actually a, a retired teacher from the HWDSB. So I'm really knowing all the intricacies of the, that go on and, and working closely with, with uh, the great guidance and, and, and administration team and all the teachers to really uh, look at um, not only the learning that takes place within the school um, as early grades, but not only uh, what they're going to be doing as far as beyond. I know the question is always, you know, what are you going to do when you grow up? But, but I think that's being stopped and it's like, who do you want to be when you grow up? So that's a big part of that experiential learning. And that's where working closely in, in the school boards is really helping students to find their path. Cheryl, do you get a sense that there, when it comes to experiential learning, that there's a growing appetite among students to get involved? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. I think uh, getting involved uh, in experiential learning really provides them with rich experiences that, you know, it's it's not about any one pathway, Rick. Um, We are really trying to support students to have choices when they graduate from our system and to really kind of explore some of their interests and their passions. Um, And one of the great ways that we do that is through co-op education. And uh, I have to say that this year we have students um, in co-op placements at the Hamilton International Airport, Hamilton Health Sciences, uh, Cable uh, 14, and so many more. And I do want to take the opportunity to extend my sincere appreciation Uh, to our co-op employers and placement supervisors, because uh, without their active support, time and training, the program would not be a success. So um, absolutely, I see students very, very interested uh, in gaining uh, experiential learning opportunities. And without those partners and partnerships, we we wouldn't even be here talking about this because it wouldn't exist. You need those entities and those organizations and businesses in the community to take part. Uh, Reese, last one to you. we got about 90 seconds. This, at the end of the day, has a massive impact on the economy, because if we are educating students and we're guiding them towards whether it's a skilled labor force or whatever the case is, they're going to stay here. They're going to live here. They're going to buy homes here. They're going to spend their money in this economy. It has a, a huge impact. Absolutely. I think I think you've hit the nail on the head as far as Hamilton as, as diversity had changed after the so, so many years and the, the businesses and, the, and and everything that's taking place. We want people to retain 
and to stay within the community because there is an opportunity for them to 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 uh, be educated to to go out and work uh, to uh, to basically to to develop uh, uh, community uh, to build families uh, and of course put that back into the economy so i think it's a huge huge part of 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 keeping that connectiveness with the industry and on businesses, and of course the uh, the education area. And, and Cheryl mentioned, of course, that uh, our gratitude towards all the employers and such like that. But primarily, you know, the idea that that uh, experiential learning starts as early as as K to 12. Uh, so it's not necessarily only co-op. It's job shadowing, twinning. We really want them to become on board, to be act as mentors, to help us, you know, talk about. What's going to happen with their in their environment and where they can you know what what's the benefits about you know working in that field and uh, why it's good to stay inside Hamilton? We're going to learn a lot more in this week's IEC series, so stay tuned at this time each and every day this week on Good Morning Hamilton as we dive into uh, this this great project and this great partnership between industry and education. Reese, Cheryl, I'll have to leave it there. Thanks for your time this morning. Thank you so much, Rick. Have a great day. You too. Cheryl Robinson Petrozini is the Director of Education with Hamilton's Public School Board, and Reese Morgan is the Executive Director of the Industry Education Council of Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, it doesn't sound like the federal government is in the mood to offer any more huge subsidies to automakers. This comes as Toyota Canada is planning to create an EV plant in Ontario. And word is, the ask is in, of course, the billions of dollars. Everything these days costs billions of dollars. You will recall that Ottawa and the provincial government have already committed more than $13 billion in subsidies to Volkswagen, another $15 billion to Stellantis for battery manufacturing facilities. And I can't blame you, blame you for thinking, uh, like, enough already. Enough. This is too much, too many government handouts. Or is it? Marvin Ryder is a professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Marvin, good morning. How are you? Fine, thank you. Glad to be with you. Uh, From a business case, you know, subsidies have worked to keep plants open. They've worked to keep people working. So why not continue this? And also to to attract plants and to to create an industry. So this is the the basis of what we're doing here. We know the future is supposed to be electric vehicles and uh, companies have a choice about where they're going to manufacture the vehicles and the vehicle components. And there was a concern that because America was going to be quite generous through the Inflation Reduction Act, I think they have a total of $380 billion set aside to try to support the car industry, that maybe all of those investments would happen south of the border. So Canada made the decision, and in partnership with the Ontario government, that they would spend money to attract some of those businesses here. What we've seen so far is a a tremendous, as you point out, a tremendous investment. Now, granted, it's over 10 years, so it's not $15 billion up front or $13 billion up front. It'll be the total cost, the subsidies over a 10-year period to get a core of these kinds of businesses here. So Volkswagen is one. Stellantis is another. I can't give you the name of a third, but this was a a plant that manufactured the components for electric vehicles. It will be in the eastern townships in Ontario. And there's also a Quebec company as well that's going to be created through all of this. Um, So now Toyota comes and Toyota was looking to build not an EV factory, but it was another EV battery factory. And they went to the government and said, "Okay, what have you got for us? And basically, the government said, well, look, we've created this critical mass of businesses infrastructure here. 
we've already uh, set the groundwork. We're welcoming you if you'd like to come here, but we just don't have more cash. And I think at some point you can't outspend the American government. So no surprise, Toyota has decided to take their $8 billion investment and instead move to North Carolina. Are these subsidies, uh, can they be considered good investments, i.e., do we eventually get the this money back in a variety of ways? We do. We do, absolutely. So remember, all of those uh, employees there are going to be paying taxes. The, the business is going to pay some taxes as well. And more importantly, we create this base of technology that we might not have had otherwise. Occasionally, we've seen industries, strategic industries, choose not to locate in Canada, and you can't then attract them five years later or 10 years down the road. So I think it's a good investment, but I think it's also a case that we just can't shovel money out the door, meaning that in a head-to-head competition with any government, whether it is the American government or the British government or the French government, there is a limit to how much cash Canada has. And I'm I'm not saying the account is dry uh, for the right kind of a project. I'm thinking now about something to develop the so-called ring of fire in northern Ontario and start uh, uh, getting some of those minerals out of the ground, I think there would still be money there. But for a third EV battery factory, well, not sure how much value there was for a third one. Marvin Ryder is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mr. Ryder is a professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, and we're talking about government subsidies, in this case to automakers, which are worth billions of dollars. And, you know, many people will say, listen, the precedent has already been set. Uh, The the two examples that I gave, how can, you know, Ottawa or the provincial government say yes to some automakers and and no to others? Is it a foregone conclusion that some money is going to be doled out? Uh, Well, I I suspect in the future you're going to see more money doled out now on in terms of the actual manufacture of EVs, electric vehicles, to make sure we've got the assembly plants here. But the other thing that... Rick, and I I don't claim to have the details in front of me here, but I also imagine that the deal that Ottawa and Ontario signed with Stellantis and with Volkswagen probably have some clauses in it about, well, how many more of these can you do? In other words, I think those companies wanted some competition in the area, but they don't want an infinite amount of competition in the area. So I wouldn't be surprised if those also limit how many more plants uh, a Canada could be subsidizing. We will never know for sure, but I think it's partly due to the cash, but I think it's also partly that Ottawa says, well, we've actually got enough for a base here. If you want to join in the party, come on and join in, but we're not going to shovel out the cash. If these automakers get a no from Ontario or the feds, I'm sure they're going to be fishing for a yes elsewhere. And, you know, the U.S. and Mexico are right there, and I'm sure they would be eagerly saying, yeah, come, come to us. Well, we know, for instance, that Toyota has has announced that they're going to build their EV battery factory in North Carolina. We understood that um, there were two other states that were vying for it. And those states, Texas, I think, was one of them, were also willing to shovel out the cash. That's the world we live in today, that uh, jurisdictions are so desperate to have these kinds of businesses in their location that they will, in some cases, shovel out too much cash. We've actually occasionally seen... Uh, almost states go bankrupt shoveling out the cash. And so I think we want to be competitive. We want to support. We want to do what's prudent. But there comes a point where in a head-to-head battle, we just don't print enough money. We don't have enough money to compete. And I think this is where we're starting to get now in the electric vehicle industry. Sounds like it. Marvin, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. 
Glad to be with you. Marvin Ryder is a professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make Make sure you rate and review.